Howdy, folks. Happy Monday. We had a full weekend of football. Uh, the college football championship is tonight. I'll, I'll probably watch a little bit of it, but it doesn't really, not watch any of it. Yeah, it doesn't really grab me. ESPN is broadcasting on like every network they own, having like the LSU broadcast in, in Mandarin. It's like it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> how many different things they're doing. Um, we have a few things to touch on in the pre-show. I just wanted to start out with this. Uh, it's a little old news now since it happened on Friday after the show, but Neil Peart, the uh, drummer of, of Rush, passed away of uh, brain cancer at the age of 67. And it was funny because uh, at the Sabres game on Saturday afternoon, the Sabres came out to Tom Sawyer. Rush was very big in Buffalo, very big, obviously, in Toronto, where they were from. Um, you know, they're, you could argue whether they're a progressive band, Russ, Russ, I, I believe they were cause they're, they're main, no, they were, they yeah, were, their main influences were Genesis and yes, but always loved them, saw them live a bunch of times. And you know, it's, this is the reality that we're going to face over the next say 10 to 15 years. All of our heroes are going to be passing away. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of rush, but I liked a few songs, but I liked the musicians. They were great musicians. Like if I did a Mount Rushmore of drummers, it'd be Buddy Rich, Carl Palmer, and Neil Peart. And then Bruford would probably be the next one. It's because I, I noticed Peart like probably 15 years ago was playing like a bigger drum set than anybody I'd ever seen other than Carl Palmer. So I that's when I sort of clued in like, wow, he's even better than I, than I thought he was because I'd never seen him live or anything. Yeah, when a, when a, a rock star passes away, um, it really does remind me. It's to me, it's very similar when an athlete passes away. Like yeah. it's not the same when a movie star. Um, no. but, uh, but some, you know, rock and roll and sports because of the energy and when you know how you feel when you go to the events. I think it's a. It, there's some similarity there. Like I think you get the same sort of buzz or high of going to a concert as you get to go into a, you know, a real good. Uh, uh, sporting event. So that's how I always feel when someone passes away the same way when I do when an athlete, an athlete from my childhood, um, you know, passes away. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I was lucky enough to see them as a young person, like it, in my high school days, um, when they played at the odd in Buffalo and I saw them in their, on their last tour, I think it was four or five years ago, they were still great live. They hadn't dropped off uh, like a lot of other uh, older bands and older performers have. So I'm just thankful that I saw them live so many times. Um, I'm switching to football here. Uh, Russ, I took inordinate amount of pleasure at seeing the Baltimore Ravens losing, not because I had anything against the Ravens, but a sports radio personality in Baltimore in their off week decided to slam Buffalo as a city of losers and was just basically trashing Buffalo. And only for that reason, I'm like, okay, buddy, I hope your team loses. And the gods shined on the Tennessee Titans. So I was very happy. Yeah, I mean, I like Lamar Jackson. I wasn't rooting for the same kind of thing you were. But I, I'm i now rooting against the referees. I saw some stuff that was just ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. So in the, in the Green Bay game, as an example, the second touchdown Green Bay scored, they call it immediately a touchdown. Mm-hmm. But there's no way they could have seen that it was a touchdown. With the way the pile was, with the way the ball was, it is impossible. But they immediately call touchdown, right? And what you realize after three replays is that you see the guy's helmet, and the helmet is over the line. His body's nowhere over the line, which means the ball can't be over the line because his head was he was head first. And of course, in the replay, they can't overturn it because they're like, "Well, there's nothing definitive." And it's like, so that's the biggest bugaboo now with football, Kevin. Is and they're calling these definitive things too quickly. And then in replay, you can't do anything about it now. Well, I, you know, it's hard for me to get worked up over officiating. I, I do with some things. You know, when you had the grievous uh, pass interference call last year, um, like that was just so far over the line. And you, you you do want to prevent that. But, you know, there's no perfect system. Like I always say, to you, like tell me, give me a better system. Like they've tried forever to try to make it work and try to be better. And no matter what they seem to do, it's it's never good enough, and and they really have. I mean, look in our in the last fifteen years, you know, we've tried everything, trying to trying to be better, not only in football but in hockey as well. And it's still not imperfect. And I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, and I don't even think it's ever going to be close. Like I think it's just a frustration that's sort of built in 
to all sports watching. And, you know, we, we had to accept it when we were kids before replay. And even with replay, we, we've now discovered we still have to accept that these kind of things are, are going to happen. And, and I, actually, Kevin's hit on something here because, like, and we'll talk about the NHL thing when we get into the regular show, but, like, Jadavian Clowney put on a headshot that wasn't even sure. penalized. So all the sports, for all the talk about the headshots, for all the rules about the headshots, we're still finding that at different times it doesn't matter. Well, for those who criticize the NHL for having different standards when it comes to penalties in the playoffs as opposed to the regular season, like I said, last week Josh Allen got hit after he had thrown the ball three times. There was no call whatsoever, so there's a different standard. And in the NFL yeah, – Lamar Jackson was on the ground. He got hit in the head. Yeah, uh, and there were two calls this week. Both One was at the end of the game, so it attracted a lot of attention. The Jimmy Graham catch on third and nine where he slid past the line. It's like, you know, if you use the replay, like if you see where he's caught the ball and where he's down, okay. But the problem is there's continuous motion, and he's, you know, he can't stop himself like right when he hits the ground. So it's tough. And the other one was Deshaun Watson early in that game against Kansas City. He ran, he went for the corner of the end zone. He, the ball was not in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in bounds, but he, his body was in yeah. bounds. And then as he crossed the goal line, he loses possession and he fumbles it out of the end zone. They called it touchdown yeah. and they didn't have uh, established evidence video wise to overturn it. That shouldn't have been a touchdown, but. Yeah, but that's you know, like I said, I just don't know there's yeah. any any way you're ever going to get that, those out of the game. I, no. you know, I mean, if 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 you could, we would have done it a long time ago. Sure, uh, yeah. because I I don't think the NFL loves being embarrassed like this every week. I, there's just no other options. I mean, we, we you know we've tried. You you can't replay every, um, you know. I, I guess ideally you could replay every play and have a jury of twelve doing an instant. <laughs> Thing. And I bet we'd still find we're unhappy with what you know they have to say sure. about it because we see it now. Like I, I find it absolutely amazing, and it's more so in in the NFL, but occasionally in the NHL, you'll be watching a game with five people, and you'll all watch the in, the replay two or three times, and you'll never be unanimous on what you just saw. Right. Like, like it, it never, like you never agree. Well, Even there's also there's the one elephant in the room with this, and we never know the answer is. We never know exactly what they're looking at in Toronto or New York when we're talking about these leagues, too. Because even on air, they always say, well, just so you know, they're not seeing this view. Then why are we seeing it? Yeah. And then, yeah. and then they, show the view, they show the view that they get five minutes after the fact – you know, right. it's not. It's still. It's not in question what the decision was. They show it then. Why can't they show it to us instantaneously? Right. Just show me what they're seeing. Don't show me anything else. Well, the, the other problem is too. Um, you know, when we were a kid, when these kind of things would happen, our coaches, um, who hated whining about officiating back then, now it's not only acceptable; it's expected. Yeah. Um, but back then, they'd always say, "We don't, you know, don't get in a position where one officiating call is going to cost the game." Well, sure. the problem with that kind of logic now is there's so much parity. Like, you know, we talk about parity in the NHL, and that, and it is a different level of parity. But the yeah. NFL has some parity too. Um, you know, there's some really good teams, and we we've seen this. Obviously, the Ravens are a terrific team, and crash goes their chariot, and they're gone. And uh, we saw a scare there as well. Um, Kansas City. Yeah, uh, where you know, it looked uh, you know problematic, and you know, and we want them to get it right. I I just don't think, I I just think for us to whine and complain about it, it's not going to change. There's always because if you have any measure of human element, which you have to have, you know, you're going to always have plays like this. It's just the way it is. Well, just consider that. Consider this. It gives us something to talk about on the shows. Well, it, it you know, it's it's almost built for talk radio and for podcasts. Yeah, I mean, people do are like they're like people have always been upset about officiating. When I was a kid, there's probably just as many people who were upset about it, but now we know about it because we got social media and, and everything else. And we just well, the good news for you, Kev, is knowing that you're a Lions fan, you should at least be happy to know that there's a dumber organization than the Lions, and that's the Cleveland Browns. So, <laughs> well, I, I, I hope I, I, I read this now. I, 
did I read it wrong, or have they said that they, when they did the hiring of the coach, they told him that he had to submit his game plan to the analytics people by Friday? I heard, I heard that I, uh, this morning. Like, wow! Like, w this is how far we've gone. Like that, you know, that's amazing. But you know, I just had this conversation with someone from the NHL today. Like, <clears throat> you know, we had analytics back then we just didn't call it that like when we were in little league baseball your coach always said hey a walk is as good as a hit right you know, they, they they said that all the time yeah and now we know because of moneyball well that's really true uh, mm -hmm. you get on base and everything else and there and there's more power to it but now it's even reached in the recreational um uh sports playing and i'll give you an example of that i as, as some of you know follow me on social media i bowl once a year and that is at the Allen uh, Bowling Extravaganza, which is my family and friends. We we have somewhere between 25 and 30 people. We go out, we bowl a couple of games, have a good time. At the alley we bowled at this year, they keep track of the spin rate of your ball <laughs> and how hard that you throw it. Wow. So when you're done, not only do you get a score, but you see that you threw the ball at 17 miles an hour or 18 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour. And how many revolutions? It had you know, on the way to the pins. Now, uh, that frankly, that's just <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe too much information, but like the analytics has now crept in to the, uh, uh, you know, the amateur use. And I find myself now um, that uh, when I'm golfing, because I've watched so much golf, I say, you know, like my, my, uh, the, my swing rate, it, you know, isn't good enough. That's why I'm not driving, you know, and I start to think, what can I do? And instead of saying, you know, I'm going to swing harder, I start thinking, well, where can I get a club that will compensate for my, my, my lack of, uh, of uh, speed on my swing? So, Well, Kev, I, I bowl every two weeks in a league. I've done that for a, a, a couple decades. And the way I bowled last week, it was like I bowled once a year. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, right. let's talk some hockey. We've probably bored everyone to tears. Yeah. Hello, Hockey World. Today is Monday, January 13th, 2020. I'm Russ Cohen from Sportsology. I'm Kevin Allen, just Kevin Allen. And I'm just Michael Agello, and this is the Hockey Buzzcast here on HockeyBuzz.com. All right, uh, let's start with this because this sort of took me aback yesterday. And Kev, I, I was looking forward to discussing this with you. The firing of Ray Shiro as the GM of the New Jersey Devils. Um, I believe he's been there for five seasons. Uh, you know, so he's been he's been there for a while. But you know, very successful general manager, very good reputation throughout the league. He fired John Hines earlier this year. Um, the team has won the draft lottery twice, taking Heashier and taking Jack Hughes. But this seems to be an organization that's in transition or turmoil. You have to say it because they're they're not in, they're not having a lot of success. And I'm a little surprised that uh, that Shiro got fired. But uh, give me uh, you know let let me let us know what you think of this situation. Well, I I was surprised. Uh, you know, I really was. I mean, you you just. Uh you know, explained it. Uh, this is a guy with a, uh, um, a, a top-notch reputation around the league, one of the most well-liked general managers in the league. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, he could be a candidate even still today for, for other jobs. Um, I think he has that much respect around the league. Now, saying all that, you know, in today's world, um, having a good reputation – and being well liked is not going to save you from being fired, uh, and it didn't. Uh, and this is a production-oriented league, and I think there were complications here. And uh, this is not based on any reporting; this is based on observation. Mm -hmm. But I would suggest to you that Ray Shiro um, protected John Hines a little longer than ownership wanted him to, and I think at that point it created um, maybe some doubt in ownership's mind about whether they had the right guy. Uh, and I think as they began to look at this and started to, you know, analyze what he had done, the PK Subban hiring, now he wants out, um, you know, and did, did what I think ownership, you know, probably was expecting a, I don't know if they expected him to win the cup this year, but I'm sure 
sure that they expected to be much better than they were this season. And I'm guessing they had a meeting of uh, of the minds, and in that meeting it was realized that they weren't on the same page and that the way Ray Shiro saw this franchise going and ownership probably wasn't the same. And I base that on the phrasing of, uh, you know, they came to a mutual agreement. Um, I don't know that they, you know, maybe they weren't going to fire him going in, but I think once they got in that meeting, I think everybody realized, you know, this, 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 uh, relationship, uh, isn't working and may not work. Um, and they moved on. So, uh, I, it may take Ray some time to get back because general managers, as we all know, um, they hang onto their jobs a little bit longer than coaches. So they don't turn over as much, but I, we'll see Ray in the league for sure. Uh, he's too good a guy. It's not like I say this all the time when coaches get fired, but the same is true GMs. He didn't wake up on a Monday and forget how to be a good general manager. Uh, uh, circumstances. Now, you know, he there, it was, it was the, the writing on the wall was in his handwriting. I mean, he made these decisions, but, um, you know, some of them, um, uh, you know, were th- things out of his control. Like he couldn't, you know, he, he wanted to resign Taylor Hall, but couldn't. Uh, he was unwilling to, to resign. Um, but the Subban one, he'll have to take responsibility for. Well, I, I looked at it differently. Like I knew he would get fired at some point if the results were bad. I didn't know it would be that Sunday, but I knew he was on shaky ground, not because he deserved it, but because Josh Harris has unrealistic expectations. So I think Harris went into that summer basically telling Shiro, you we got to make the playoffs. So Shiro did what he could as a really good GM, and he pulled off a good trade. I think P.K. Subban didn't come in this kind of shape that P.K. Subban needs to be in this this point in his career, and he's not having the same results. So I think next year you'll probably see a better P.K. Subban, but that doesn't save Ray Shiro right now. The other thing is I knew Shiro would be around long enough to trade Taylor Hall because I knew Harris wanted him to trade him if that was going to happen, and he was going to – that's how Harris is. He was going to keep him around to trade him. And I think after the return, I think they probably – the club didn't like the return. Harris didn't like the return that he got. And I think that probably soured things too. But again, that's not all on Shiro because there was a very narrow window, very narrow margin. You knew he wasn't coming back. Like everything sort of denigrated after they knew they couldn't sign him. So I wasn't blaming Shiro either. The other situation is this is what happens sometimes when you have an owner that owns two teams and one of them's really good and one of them's not where he wants it to be. And now he's making quicker decisions because even after this decision, poor Tom Fitzgerald, he's teaming up with Marty Bordeaux, who's got limited front office experience. He was actually working on the business side, not even on the hockey side this year. And now he is expecting results. Like Josh Harris said, well, I'm expecting results out of this. And it's like they have the number one defenseman on the free agent market, on the trade market in Sammy Votnin, and they've got to at least trade Andy Green. And you've got somebody who's brand new at it. I mean, Cheryl could call anybody and get them to listen, now you've got Brodeur and, and Fitzgerald doing it, who's guaranteeing a great return now? I mean, that's that's what the scoop is, I would say. Well, let's say this. Shiro operated last summer like his job was on the line based on the moves that they made. They went out and they got Gusev. They went out and they signed uh, Wayne Simmons to a one-year deal. He traded, and he didn't have to trade a lot to get Subban because Nashville was looking to dump his $9 million contract. I mean, Kev, I, well, did I mishear you? Did you say Subban has – I don't think he – I haven't heard him requesting a trade, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's looking to get out of New Jersey because it's a situation where they're in a re, they're, they're basically in a rebuild now. So he's in his early 30s. I think he probably would want to go someplace where he's where it's a contender, but that puts the Devils in a, in a pickle because who's going to be able to accept a $9 million salary on a guy who right now looks like he's in decline? Yeah, and, and I, I think that uh, um, I don't know whether he officially asked for one, but the rumor around the league is is that you know he he wants out just because he doesn't see this as there's no plan um, right. and there's nothing in place that assures this team is going to get better kind of next season. So um, I, you know we'll we'll have to see what happens. I, it would be difficult to trade anyway. Yeah, yeah, you know especially in season if you're going to trade Subban, you'd have to trade him in the off season. Right. In yeah. My- I- and the, t- and the talk is right now uh, that, uh, I mean, Elliot Friedman was just mentioning that not only are the, do they have rentals like Votnin, and like, um, like Andy Green, but that players like Miles Wood, that they've been, they, they've been sort of 
putting his name out there. Uh, Blake Coleman is somebody who's attracted attention. If you're trading those guys with term left on their contracts, then it's a full rebuild. Then you're going out there yeah. and basically saying we have to completely remake this team and build around the Hughes and the and uh, Heeshear. Right now they have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They've got guys like Ty Smith coming, but it's not enough to make a team. And so now they do have to sort of make this decision. And I don't think they're going to be able to even move Subban in the offseason. I think they're going to – and, again, you still need some guys to play defense. Like, there's just not enough on the – to even be an NHL defense, so they'd have to retain salary, Russ. But I think, I, honestly, if he's saying to them, "I want out," but I've got a young goalie that I have to have some players in front of, or I am not giving him a chance to develop in this league if there's no defense in front of him. Well, maybe I'm over. Maybe I'm over franchise goalie. Maybe I'm overestimating the importance of this, but it was real, really curious that the same day they fired Shiro, they called up Corey Schneider from. Uh, from the AHL. I think they're just shopping them. I think Snyder had a good little moment in, in the A, and they said, okay, we're going to call you up. If you perform well here, maybe they could get something for Corey Schneider. I think that's the hope. If the Devils wanted just a glimpse of what happens if they trade Green and Botten, and all they got to do is look at the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, right. That has absolutely no uh, proven defenseman. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're an absolute defensive mess. They're giving up four five goalies, uh, four to five goals, uh, you know, pretty frequently. Um, they give up so many scoring chances. Yeah, I, I saw I saw on Reddit this morning that the Detroit Red Wings at this point, and this is 43, 44 games into the regular season, have given up as many goals as the 98-99 Buffalo Sabres have the entire season. That was the year that Hasek got them to the cup final. Um, okay, the other big story, and I was watching this game and saw – uh, the replay of the first Matthew Kachuk hit on Zach Cassian. But uh, Matthew Kachuk, I think, was purposeful in going after Zach Cassian, who he knows is a loose cannon, has been a loose cannon in junior, has been a loose cannon in the NHL with a number of different teams. And he got Cassian to go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs because he grabbed him and punched, try, you know, basically tried to get him to fight and then wailed on him. Uh, he got a four-minute double minor, and now he's facing susp uh, possible suspension. And Kachuk, after the game, said, you want to avoid getting hit? Stay off the train stay off the train tracks. Um, I love this kind of hockey. I, lo I, I loved guys like Darcy Tucker. I love the Kachuk brothers. They stir it up. It's what's needed in this game, and people who are complaining that you know he was targeting Cassian. Well, he did. I mean, yeah, Cassian's been targeting players his entire career. No, no, no. But when you when a guy's doing a wraparound, you are completely susceptible. And he hit him right in the head while he did a wraparound, and I and and that was an awful hit. Like I, I don't didn't see that. I saw I saw the other. The, well, the other is the byproduct of the no call from the wraparound, and that's what Scotty Upshaw was talking about on Twitter. Yeah. That's what made me look. And, yeah, there was a wraparound, and Kachuk hit him right in the head. Yeah. And so, of course, when nothing's called, then this is the same story that we always hear, that if the refs don't make the calls on the ice, the players will police, attempt to police the game. Yeah. And that's what we got. Well, and I'm, I'm definitely in the minority, Kev, because I know that, like like Russ said, Upshaw came out on Twitter and said that, that, that Kachuk was out of line. Timu Solani basically called out George Peros and said – this guy is facing suspension when the other guy who hit who hit uh, Cassian three times is not. It's like so it's getting it's raising the uh, temperature on a number of fronts. Well, it, to me, it was 1970s, 1980s hockey. This, you know, when you you see that, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that used to go on where you know you you target a guy that you knew you could get off his game and yeah. you know um, and get him riled up and then uh, you know because that has a, as we all know it's contagious. It's it you know, causes issues with your with your team when you do that um, as well. So, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, it made me laugh, to be honest with you. It, it really I mean, did. I love Matthew Kachuk as a player. I do. I do, too. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, the Kachuks, I mean, geez, like, it, it just, it's just funny to me that, you know, you know, Keith could have two sons who play the game so similarly to the way he played. Um, it's, it's really remarkable when you think about it. Just think about it in their house. If there was one pancake and the three of them, what would happen? I'd be afraid. <coughs> right. Yeah. Well, 
Well, we know we know Keith would get it. Uh, <laughs> no. All right, but okay. So I like I, I like I said I, I have no problem with this. I you know if he was targeting the head, then he should have faced. But you don't think there should be a suspension? You think he's just going to get a fine today? No, I think Cassian's going to get suspended. Everybody, everybody is pointing to a suspension from a couple of years ago uh, involving Darnell Nurse targeting uh, Roman Polak, and he got two games, and they're using that as a comparative, saying that Cassian's probably going to get two or three games. And uh, you know, again, but Kachuk should get something too. Yeah, but he hasn't—he's not facing any kind of discipline, which is crazy. Like that's the crazy part. That's again where we look at this and say, if they are truly trying to do away with headshots, yeah. They need to do better. Yeah. Um, Kev, we're now about six weeks away from the trade deadline, and it's starting to percolate now. I mean, I think we know there are teams that are definitely going to be sellers. Ottawa, they have Pajot, they have a couple other players, uh, Craig Anderson for anybody who needs a goaltender. The Red Wings, we know if Mike Green and Trevor Daly are healthy, uh, they'll probably be shopped as rentals. The question is whether these teams will move anybody else that have term left in their contracts, but I'm concentrating on the rentals. I mean, what are you hearing? I mean, because it just sounds to me like those guys are going to be not easy to move because of their salaries, but they'll be the ones that they'll be the most talk about. Yeah, I mean the rentals will draw attention. I in the Detroit, I know I've heard about Darren Helm possibly. I've heard a little bit of a scuttlebutt that uh, their teams have uh, some modest interest, some contenders. Right. Um, you know, he's a guy who can score, he can skate, uh, and you know, if he was on a really good team, he's he's actually got a, a really a pretty good plus minus for a team that you know mm. just gives up so many goals as well. So he's had a decent season, <clears throat> you know, and on the right team, he's a 15 goal scorer. Um, so. I, I could see that happening, but there's no doubt that there, the many of the contenders are looking uh, for uh, you know the for help. But what's interesting to me is is that some of the prime contenders are all looking at the same guy. Like you know, Colorado is interesting in in, in Kreider of uh, the Rangers, and you know, so are the uh, uh, the Boston Bruins. Like I think he's a perfect fit for Boston, to be honest with you. Sure. You know, being from Massachusetts, if you look at at uh, you know last year, um, you know, well, you know, all the the Massachusetts players they had last season, um, they brought in Coyle, they brought they in Charlie Coyle, and you know that 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 served them well. They were happy with that experiment, so I I could see that happening um, as well. I I think Kreider would be a good fit in uh, uh, Edmonton as well. I think they need a score, but I, I hear. Uh, reading Larry Brooks, that there's the thought he is not okaying any trades to Canadian right. uh, teams. So if that's the case, that's too bad. I, I really think it's important for Edmonton to make a move. Uh, I think it's important they get in the playoffs. Uh, I, I think it's important from the league perspective because I think we need to see Connor McDavid in the playoffs and Dreisaitl. Um, but I also think it's more important for the fan base there. And I think it's for, important for Ken Holland. Yeah. You know, he's coming in, he's trying to make a – um, send a message that uh, it's going to be different. And I, I think, uh, you know, he needs to do whatever he needs to do. But the problem is, even if they get more scoring, which I think they need, it's their goaltending that could hold them back. Um, uh, you know, I, I just don't have much trust in the goaltending there. No, Koskinen's got a five hole that a Mack truck to drive through. And yeah. Mike Smith Mike Smith played a string of great games in the last couple of weeks and played okay. But I mean that that's the thing. I mean, the thing I'm a little hesitant about with when it comes to Edmonton is Holland supposedly was in on Taylor Hall and did not like what New Jersey was asking for. They've got some good young defensemen, they got some good forward prospects. He doesn't want to give them up. He came on Toronto radio last week and said, Well, I you know, I want to I want to maintain our future, but I also want to go for uh, you know, because we have McDavid and Drysaddle, and like you can't do the two, the, the, those two things at, at once. If you're going to trade for well, rentals, you're going to have to give up something to get well, them. You, you, you can, but you got to see the the reason the uh, the Coyotes were able uh, to make the trade for Taylor Hall is they wouldn't give up their top guys either. Right. But they had a bunch of B plus guys, right. you know, and that's where Edmonton falls short. They just have A guys and B right. guys, and C guys. And the you know the the Coyotes you know gave up a bunch of guys that you go well, okay you know Kevin I mean, World Junior yeah. yeah yeah so and and I think that was the the key I don't think the Oilers had uh, you know they didn't have enough depth to give them uh, you know multiple guys to offset the fact they wouldn't give up their top prospects because you know the Coyotes didn't give up either their top two guys. 
So, well, Russ, going back to Kreider for a sec, just mm -hmm. I mean, I know that you've been consistent in saying that um, the Rangers ideally would love to get him signed, but yeah. yeah, but in the summer, I think they'll trade him for the assets and bring him back. That's what I think because Jeff Gordon has a relationship with him, and I really do think that's what's going to happen. But you know, but does that really work? I mean, we keep always talking about that. Yeah. But, it works know, in a while we see a trade come, a player come back, but it's rare. Keith yeah. so, It happened with Keith Kachuk, but yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's happened to be sure. But I, I think it's always a big risk because you end up playing with a guy, and if that team has success, then you start to you know bond with the guys, and it's just well, know, I, I think. If you trade him to the Bruins, which I do think is a possibility, right? I don't know if they could sign him, Kev. I don't right. even know if they'll have the cap space. No, no. So that's where at least it becomes a chance for them where he's not going somewhere where they definitely can. Where, Whereas if you trade him to Colorado, they got enough cap space. Yeah, I mean, they could re-sign him, but you know, then a few years down the line when they have to sign McKinnon, then they may run into a few, a few problems. And Plus, I do think Gordon – Kreider would look at Gordon thinking him he's doing a good thing for him, trading him to Boston because that's where he's from and he'll have a good time there. And then he can go back to the Rangers if he wants. And that's something where that might satisfy him for playing for the Bruins, you know, because maybe as a kid he wanted to. I think that's all good. The return will be interesting, though, because like the, you know, the Rangers are already traded with the Bruins before and gotten good results. But now I don't think if, if, the, if they try and put like Zanishin or Zaboral into a package, I don't think the Rangers are going to accept that. For Kreider, I think the Bruins are going to have to give him something better. Like I think you can get the Zaboral and Sinitian for Toffoli, but I don't think you can do it for Kreider because he's a guaranteed 25-30 goal guy. He scores, he plays in the playoffs with speed. They're going to have to give up more than that. Now I don't know. I, hmm? Well, no, I was just going to say you brought up Toffoli. I heard a report uh, a couple days ago that. The Bruins basically know what the price would be for Toffoli. Right. And sort of holding that in their back pocket that, you know, uh, ideally they'd love to get Kreider because Kreider would be a difference maker in their top six. But if right. the fallback would be Toffoli, the problem is, though, is that how long is Rob Blake going to wait for a team to offer something for Toffoli? I'm sure he's got offers already on the books for Toffoli. Right. And at a certain point he's going to say, I got to jump at this because he could get injured. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So, Around this time is when Jake Muzzin was traded from L.A. to Toronto, and that sort of started the, the sale last year. And I think it's going to happen probably just before the All-Star break. What I think is going to happen, though, is the Rangers could prey on the Bruins not only wanting to get back to the Cup but winning it now because they were just there. And I think they could pry someone like Anders Bork or Jackson Mika or somebody like that. And I think that's what they – Trent Frederick or Frederick. And I think that's the kind of forward they're going to have to extract in this plus a draft pick and, you know, it'll be conditional and all that, that kind of deal. Well, Kevin, I, I wrote about this la uh, last week and I, I believe it. The real power brokers in the next six weeks are not going to be the contenders and what they're willing to pay. It's going to be the teams that have cap space and, and what, you know, they're going to be, if they're willing to take on salary, to use it as basically a storage facility, as you would, uh, before the deadline. A team like Chicago, who just opened up $11 million in cap space because of Seabrook and DeHaan going on long-term injury, they could take on a short-term contract, a, 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 a rental or something like that to for another team to clear cap space. We saw, we saw, that, we saw that a couple weeks ago. Montreal... Calgary, Buffalo, all had to make deals to clear space to make just a, a tweaking move. And I, th I think that, that teams like Ottawa, teams like Detroit. Columbus has space and they're going to be Columbus, fine. New Jersey, yeah. they're all going to be power brokers at this deadline. I, I, I think you will see more of that, but I don't, I don't think it'll be on a grand scale. Like, I, you know, uh, GMs have talked, like, no one minds taking a, you know, a, a smaller salary. Uh, especially if you're not going to be a cap team, but nobody's going to take any large, you no, know, I, think it's like I keep seeing suggestions that, you know, you're going to be able to park a, uh, you know, a larger contract with these small, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, not unless you're willing to give up something just incredible. I, you know, I was, I, I do believe you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of smaller, you know, trades where you'll just take a guy that's, you know, making 3 million or whatever, because that's what you need to, uh, clear. But I don't see any bigger guys, uh, 
uh, bigger contracts moving. I mean, I was going to say, I could see Columbus going after two or three players because they can do it. And if they're in it, they could be one of the bigger power brokers of this trading deadline. I'm rooting for them. I I really am. I, I really want them to be aggressive again because I just really love, you know, they're in it to win it. And that's what sports should be about. I, yeah. you know, but then again, then again, they they exhausted enough assets, future assets, to get Duchesne, to get Dzingel last year. That just having cap space might be enough. Like if, if there's a team out, like for example, I'll just use this as an example. This is not a not a rumor. I'm just saying as an example. If they need to upgrade on defense, and Zach Bogosian is out there, and and the Sabers are looking to move his contract to clear space for something else. And Columbus needs a defenseman, then why not? It's a, it's a rental. It's it's not going to hurt you going forward. But you're, they're not going to take on a, a Jakob Voracek who's got three three or four years at eight million bucks. But they would take a rental on if they think it'll help their pursuit of getting into the playoffs. Yeah, I agree. So now I I, I just have to say I, I you know because everybody in the in the chat is talking about the Leafs, so I'll just touch on this. The Leafs. Were embarrassed themselves last night. Lost eight to four to Florida. Uh, J- uh, Jonathan Huberdeau is now the leading scorer in Florida Panthers history, which is a little surprising. With 420 points is the leading point getter in the history of the Florida Panthers. It's sort of a statement on on how transitional the Panthers have been throughout their history. But a lot of people are concerned about what the Leafs are doing right now. They've lost three games in a row. Uh, sort of a, an adjustment after going so great under Sheldon Keefe. So I don't think there's reason for panic out there. But there is reason, I think, to panic, Kev, because the problems that occurred under Mike Babcock are still there. It's defense. It's defense, not just the blue line, but the team's concept of playing defensively. And I know that Kyle Dubas has received a lot of criticism uh, with the the team that is high on skill, high on speed, but low on pushback, low on toughness and low on being able to play defensively. And, they're you know they're going to come up against Boston or Tampa in the first round of the playoffs, and the big question is going to be whether that team can play against those giants and beat them. Right now, the way they play defensively, I don't see them beating them. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, you know, and there's there's some pressure on Keith, I think, to um, make sure that he gets them. Uh, like like the natural players just hired John Hines basically because he's a guy known for structure. And, you know, they score enough goals. They score a lot of goals. They're among the leading goal scorers, but they've had no structure. Uh, they actually um, miss P.K. Subban. Uh, and I know a lot of people would go, what? Uh, because, you know, he's not known as a defensive player. But, you know, they're they're playing now a bunch of guys at four, five, and six who are really sixes uh, now. Um, so they're, I think they're one short. But more importantly, they brought in Hines, to bring in some structure, and you saw that against Winnipeg. I don't know if you watched the the Winnipeg game, but you know the Winnipeg, which is we all know, is a very good offensive team with a lot of dangerous players. They didn't get much opportunity uh, to score because of the structure. I I don't think you would have seen that with a Laviolette Predators team um, before. And I I think you know the point I make about Toronto is is that you know Babcock couldn't get these people to buy in. We all know. Defense is really just commitment by the players. Um, if Keith wants to prove that, you know, he's a guy, he's got to get some buy-in uh, to play a little bit different style because anybody can play defense. You just got to have the desire, uh, you know, to do it. And- well, I, I saw Kyle Dubas. I don't know if it was after the sixth goal or the seventh goal, writing on a notepad, and I could imagine him writing on a notepad, our defense sucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, that- he, what he was writing on a notepad is call up Rasmus Sandin, which they did this morning. But the problem is, and you know, Justin Hall's had a really good year. They signed him to an extension. I think he's a he's an NHL defenseman. He's probably a bottom pairing guy. But they're playing a pairing that played in the AHL two years ago. Wasn't even the top pairing on the Marlies when they when they won the Calder Cup. And that's the three four right now with the Leafs because Jake Muzzin's hurt. I, I agree with Jeff Merrick, what he said in Hockey Central. Jake Muzzin is making a lot of money in free agency right now based on how badly the Leafs are playing without him in the lineup. And guys like Morgan Riley, he's been playing hurt all year. Tyson Berry, 
is playing like Tyson Berry. He's not a very good defensive defenseman. He's a puck rusher and a power play guy. I mean, when you have forwards, Kev, that play wide open offensively and really don't play in a defensive concept, you need a defense that will cover for them, and that is not what the Leafs have right now. No, no, they don't. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't win in the postseason without without dependable defense. Like, no. you know, you, you, you can – you can get by with a weaker offense, uh, um, you know. Even, I mean, you got to have quality goaltending. But you know, I've seen seen teams that have found some success um, with a you know an average goaltender. Uh, I don't know, you can win it, um, but you could at least have some success. But you got to have some defense yeah. um, in the postseason, and you know, they're just one of the weaker defensive teams in terms of of defensive effort. Mm-hmm. Like there are some teams, you know, the Red Wings just don't have any personnel. Sure. But the Maple Leafs personnel should be better than it is defensively. Yeah. Um, so which tells you that, you know, they're just not buying in. There's just no commitment to to do it. And, you know, you know, would, would they, you know, go out and uh, bring in a guy like Martinez of L.A.? Um, well, any, any move that – any move that they make, they're right up against the cap right oh, now. That's yeah. the problem. So, like, I mean, they would have to basically pay somebody to take Cody Cece's contract off of their hands. And maybe it, it, that would happen in a deal for a guy like Martinez who's making $4 million bucks. Cece's making four and a half. They'd probably have to give up something significant on top of Cece, obviously. Um, but, I mean, we know Martinez is on the block. So, it, it's just a question of how much is going to get done at this deadline. I just, I, I, I keep, you know, you hear the names, you hear the speculation, but then the reality comes in is that not many teams have the cap space. No, no, but you um, know, that's, that's doable. Movement CC is doable. You know? yeah, I think so. Because I, I think, I think they actually, Russ, I think they could actually move CC to, to a team that is looking for a rental. Uh, I mean, yeah, not pure rental. Yeah, but I mean, uh, let's just say this: in Toronto, they're saying, "Oh my God, we're gonna have to pay this much and this much to get a team to take Cody Cece." I think there are teams out there in the playoff race that would take Cody Cece for a mid-round draft pick if they're looking for defensive depth. So I don't think it would be tough. I, I would say this: I think some Leafs fans have a bad idea of what Cody Cece is because he's been played out of position all year. Yeah, he's, he's playing higher than he should be playing in the NHL as far as pairing wise. You put him on a better team that, you know, he knocks him down a pairing, he's a lot better. All right, a couple quick things, uh, just some looks at, at teams and just your quick thoughts on them. Uh, Kev, I've been impressed with Arizona all year, the fact that they are playing really good defensively, the fact that they continue to have success even though Ranta and Kemper have been out of the lineup. Um, I, I think they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're a, they're a solid team, and Tockett's doing a great job. What do you think of uh, the Coyotes right now? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's uh, Chaika has done a tremendous job. Of, yeah. um, I think he has a great understanding. You know, he was cast as an analytics guy, but I think he has a great understanding of team chemistry as well. And hey, look, you know, some people say, well, he's made some bad trades. Well, yeah, um, but you're going to make bad trades uh, when you make a lot of trades, and he makes a lot of trades. Like he is from the David Poyle, Jim Rutherford school. Um, you know, he keeps moving the pulling the levers, moving things around, trying to find the right mix. And I think he's found it. And I, um, you know, I think Tockett has done a, a fantastic job there of getting that. Like th- that team knows its identity. Yeah. Um, they've done a good job. Like we were talking about the Panthers and I, I did an earlier podcast with Tom Laidlaw and he and I got into discussion about my problem with the Panthers right now is, is I don't know what their identity is. And I don't think they do either. Like, are they Joel Quinville? Are they Barkoff? Um, I think they're just a bit of a mystery. And I, I understand that, you know, you've got to win in the playoffs um, before you sort of know exactly kind of who you are or what you're going to be like. But mm-hmm. they, they still seem like patchwork to me. Like, they seem like, you know, I, I'm not really sure. It looks like they've plugged, okay, we were bad here. You know, we got Bobrovsky. You know, we're bad here. We got to fix. And they just seem like a, like a patch. Uh, Patchwork quilt, where I'm not really sure exactly what they are. We probably won't know uh, unless they get in the playoffs and make the run. Well, the Coyotes, to a certain extent, are like that because we have no history for them being in the playoffs. But we know what the the Coyotes are about. You know, they're a good defensive team, very structured. 
Tak has made sure they're hard to play against, and they get just enough goals in order to win. So I I, I think there's uh, I'm much I'm a little more bullish on the, on the uh, Coyotes in the postseason than I am on the Panthers, uh, even though I'm intrigued to see what the Panthers could do if they get in. Yeah, Russ, with the Panthers, I get the feeling that we know Quenville likes certain type of players. We've seen him be judgmental when it came to players in Chicago. They get they bring in somebody, he doesn't like them. He likes his guys, and I get the feeling, based on what Kevin is talking about, that there are guys on this team that he probably doesn't feel comfortable with, but he can't really move those guys out, and he's going to have to just make the best of a bad situation right now. He'll have to coach that, Mike. That's what's going to have to happen. Um, and, and he will. Like, there's just, you know, first year like that, he's going to have to deal with that. I do think there's there's upside with them, and I do think there are some deals to be made. And I think they have interesting assets. Arizona's got to get Kentner back. If they don't get Kentner back, even with Ronta, they're not going to go far in the playoffs. I just don't have any faith in anti Ronta in, in a seven-game playoff series. I don't. But with Kentner in there, with the defense that they have this year, they're really good. Yeah. Like if Kemner comes back healthy, they could be they could go right to the Western Conference Finals, and it wouldn't shock me. That's how good I think they are. But without Kempner, they are diminished a bit, and so that's the interesting part. Bobrovsky's not done well all year, so just imagine if he did, how good Florida could be. Like that's the that's yeah, the right. part. I mean, they scored eight goals, and they gave up what four to the Leafs, and Dreger was in there. Like it wasn't even Bobrovsky, right? And something, something's going on with, with the Bobrovsky. I think it's an illness. Uh, yeah. They, they had to call up Montemblanc from uh, – oh, They got one great month out of Bobrovsky at the end of the season? Which usually happens. Yeah, he marches his month. Um, now, Tampa Bay, Kev, the Tampa Bay Lightning that we thought were going to show up at the beginning of the season, yeah. it took them 40 games, but they've shown up. They, they lost to New Jersey yesterday. They had broke the 10-game winning streak, but before that, they hadn't lost since before Christmas. Russ saw them in Philadelphia. They won 1-0. They played a playoff-style game. They shut the Flyers down at home, which is difficult. This is the team that we thought we were going to see. Yeah, I, I had talked to Cooper in Chicago uh, you know, several weeks ago, and he told me essentially that it was kind of their record was really kind of an aberration. Like he thought they were actually a little bit better. And he pointed to some statistics that show that like their, you know, their, uh, you know, prime scoring chances in terms of the number they were getting was up and the number they were allowing was down. Uh, he thought those were good signs. And uh, he, he sort of compared it to like a market correction um, that, you know, last year, um, they had some uh, Vasilevsky just played out of his out of his mind, and they weren't getting those saves this year that they got last year. But he still thought they were headed in the right direction, and he seemed to indicate that he felt like they were, um, you know, in his mind they were playing okay already, and the wins would start to show up. And then right after that, they sort of went into that. So I think coaches know when uh, they see their team on a regular basis and study the film when they're close to that and. Yeah, you know, we knew Tampa would probably be there at the end. Like, uh, and the, you know, they'll be, uh, you know, they'll just be in the same situation they've been in for the last few years, where they just got to get over the hump. They got to get a little lucky. They've got to not, uh, um, you know, uh, work through the, the 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 psychology of winning in the postseason. So, but you know, that first series, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about what they did last year, and uh, you know, they just have to get through that. Russ? Yeah, the one thing in the Flyers game, I saw something in Tampa that I hadn't seen all year or from last year's Tampa. And you're right about the market correction on the – what Cooper said about the market correction on chances because – on great chances because the Flyers only had three or four good chances that whole game, maybe only one great one. And they and they basically got dominated one nothing. You know, I know it's been written well that Flyers won the first period and whatever. They They – made the Flyers play defensively to the point because they could just rush the puck up the ice so much that they totally derailed the, the Flyers' offense, completely derailed it. Mm -hmm. And and that's something where if they do that to more teams, it's a problem. The other thing that I noticed in that game was Steve Stamkos was still one of the best skaters on the ice, even at his age. And he's more than a point of game, and we kind of forget about him now. 
And we always talk about Kucherov and then point gets talked about. And Stamkos is still an unbelievable hockey player. And I don't want to say he's lost for the shuffle because he's the captain, but you know, he almost doesn't get appreciated enough. And that team, if they just play defense like that, they're going to win games because the offense is there. There's no question they get chances. And so I don't know why it took this long. And I do think they tuned out Cooper for a little while, but they're at the point where they need to be right now. Now they lost to the devils yesterday, but that was inevitable. Like, yeah, I mean, the one thing about the lightning that we should never lose track of is, you know, what makes them uh, such a strong team is their depth, but they have five players who can make the difference in any game. They've yeah. got Braden Point, um, Kucherov, Stamkos, Hedman, and Vasilevsky. I mean, those guys are can all dominate a game. Yeah. Uh, and they're capable of that. And, you know, most teams are happy to have one or two. Uh, I did see something I didn't see in the last few years, too. Braden Coburn was sort of playing the Schuster role now, Mike. And he's a lot more mobile than Schuster. He's still a great skater. And he was almost going to fight Travis Konechny until Konechny thought better of it. And I've never seen Coburn get worked up like that or play as physical as that. And so if he's now changing and sort of that's what his role is, it's a good role for him. Ross, a glacier is more mobile than Andre Schuster. Um, <laughs> two quick things here. just um, Kev, I don't know who would be tougher in the playoffs if they make one move. The Islanders, if they get a scorer or the Carolina Hurricanes if they get a goaltender. Because I think if neither happens, neither is going to make a deep run in the playoffs. What do you think? Well, I, I you know, they've – we said that last year with the Hurricanes, and they did it well. I mean, Morassic has been very good at home. Yeah. Uh, um, but, I, you know, do I feel they're top echelon goalies? No, uh, I don't. But, you know, they've, they've gotten the job done, you know, this season. But – the Islanders, boy, if they could get some scoring, because yeah. you know there there's evidence uh, and proof that uh, if you have a guy who knows how to uh, get people to buy in defensively, doesn't seem to matter who he has in net. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, didn't we all think they made a mistake when they let Robin Leonard walk? Yeah, I guess not. So, but, but the loss of Adam Pellick is huge because he was playing top pair for them. So yeah. I think their defense is a little bit less than it was even with the Trots effect. But they do still need scoring. Like it's desperate. Yeah, they do for sure. Yeah. Like I know they scored five goals the other day or four goals, but that that's a rarity for them. Yeah, uh, name it more. Last last thing here, um, Cameron Young in our chat, and uh, we'll confirm this after the show. But Russ, the Houston Astros got walloped. One year suspension for their GM. One year suspension for AJ Hinch. Losing their first and second round picks this upcoming year and the year after. So they Good. deserve that. They paid a big price for cheating. Good for Rob Manfred. It took a long time, but he did the right thing. Yeah. All right. Great show, guys. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of the Hockey Buzzcast. For Kevin Allen, for Russ Cohen, I'm Michael Agello. Thank you for watching. And remember, without the buzz, it's just hockey.